Oh, that's lovely, Nat. <laughs> How did you know I was channeling my inner Parisienne this morning? Um, well, this is Heritage Radio Network. Uh, this is the main course. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My partner in crime, Patrick Martins, alas, once again on the road, leaving me alone in the studio with naught but my good friend, Nat Wiener, engineering me. Um, today's show is sponsored by... We're not really sure, so we'll just make a stab at... Uh, Sam Edwards, we'll give him a shout out since that's where Patrick is. He's down in Virginia, uh, building building a new distribution uh, center, uh, which Sam Edwards of, um, I think it's Walter Edwards and Sons, uh, cured meats and pork products is going to be masterminding for him. So um, that's an exciting, a very exciting development in the life of uh, Heritage Foods USA. So today uh, on this show, we have, um, for starters, we have a, a, an importer um, who's going to be coming into the studio in a couple of minutes to talk about uh, some of the products that she sources uh, from art artisans in Italy and brings over here to the United States, and we'll have a little tasting. And then for the second hour of the show, and I hope you'll stay tuned for that, um, I'm bringing in the fantastic Ed Schoenfeld um, who is a restaurateur with many, many decades of experience under his belt. He is responsible for some of the, the more, um, shall we say, the, the popularization of, of high-quality high Chinese foods. He was behind the concept of Shunli and Shunli West. Um, he's uh, a, often partners up with Jimmy Eng and, um, well, you know, we'll just have to ask Ed how many restaurants he has been involved in, but but it is many, and his information and, and experience in the restaurant field, and particularly with Asian and Asian fusion cooking in New York City, is uh, beyond compare. So um, one of the things, I just wanted to talk, talk briefly about the, uh, the impending end of the world, um, because clearly the apocalypse is nigh. We, another massive earthquake in Chile. I'm still kind of reeling from the numbers there. Nat, didn't they say it was like 8.9 or 9.9? It was like the highest. Eight, yeah, 8.8. 8. 8, and keep in mind, that's a logarithmic scale too. Yeah. Okay, whatever that means. But I know you know, and surely there are others out there who do. Um, so I, you know, it's just, it's sort of like, wh when is it going to hit the United States? I don't know. California, I hope you people have built your houses securely. So, um what uh, other things in the news this week? Well, not really in the news, but other things that that uh, have piqued my interest was uh, yesterday a little trip to the Metropolitan, where I urge everyone in the New York City area to take a look at the Victorian collage albums, um, which were uh, a very uh, popular form of entertainment and recreation for women, and. Um, they used photographs uh, of people and then uh, created these watercolor scenes in which they placed the photographs to, to very um, sort of surreal and amusing effect. And, and it is so contemporary in so many ways that um, I'm amazed that people aren't really doing more of this. I certainly was inspired immediately to get out my, my um, uh, straight edge razor and, and glue pot and start, <laughs> start making these collages because they were just incredibly cool. So um, 
Nat, why don't we take a short break and then we will come back with um, Lee from um, from um, <clears throat> from uh, the um, Faithful to Foods Company, and uh, and we will go on and talk about imports. back. It's Katie Kiefer here on Heritage Radio Network. This is the main course. <clears throat> Today's program being sponsored by Edwards. Uh, fabulous cured pork products from Surrey, Virginia, um, including the Suriano ham, which <clears throat> I sampled last summer at the um, the big food festival, uh, the big food uh, expo at uh, Javits Center. And uh, it was every bit as good as any Italian or Spanish product. It was just absolutely extraordinary. And here it is manufactured in the old, good old U.S. of A. Um, Sam Edwards and his son really have a fantastic product line going. So I urge you to take a look at their website. Um, I did want to bring up, just before our guest comes in, a couple of shows that I'm planning for the next few weeks. Um, Monday, I will be talking to uh, Jeff Capel, who is uh, coming to us from a company called BioNTech. And BioNTech uh, is building an enormous um, confined area feeding operation. Yes, one of those in upstate New York, uh, or at least they're in the planning stages of that. And what makes his uh, different from everybody else's is his uh, closed loop um, technology for dealing with the effluent and the methane. We'll find out what that has, what kind of impact it's going to have on the ca- health of the cattle 
But uh, it's certainly a step in the right direction because, let's face it, uh, confined area feeding operations are never going to go away, not as long as we're going to be continuing to consume uh, large quantities of animal proteins. So um, that's one show. Another show that we're that I'm working on is uh, with Whole Foods with the regional, um, some of the regional managers for Whole Foods markets in the Northeast. And um, so a few of those folks are going to be coming on to talk about the Whole Foods philosophy and, uh, and their uh, efforts to um, sort of stay, stay within a particular paradigm of, 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 purchasing and sourcing uh, while still maintaining um, substantial uh, quality and control over their over their products and and what they're bringing in how they're getting it and why they can compete um, and why nobody else seems to be able to do this quite as well I, that, that to me is the big conundrum it's like how do they make this work how are they keeping their prices sort of competitive um, really quite competitive uh, with even the, with the crummier markets like D'Agostino's, no offense, but you know, come on. And um, come on in, ladies. Our guests have arrived. Well, Melissa, are you going to be using a, you're going to be talking too, right? <laughs> Melissa Waldron is in the studio. She's looking stricken. Oh, no. And, um, and Lee, I forgot your last name. Green. Green. <laughs> so why don't you pull that microphone right to your face, put your headphones on. And, um, and we'll get going with, um, with you and your products. I was just uh, giving my listeners, all five of them, um, some idea of, what <laughs> of the program. I think it's six, six. now, Lee. Six now. Sure. Oh, good. Um, uh, some of the programs that we have coming up, because actually I do get really great guests. I mean, I do. I mean, you know, present company included, of course, but we have had amazing people on this show. You have. It's and, a great show. Yeah. Well, thank you. So you have to say that because you're here and you're on it. <laughs> I've been listening to it extensively over the last week. Oh, good. She's done her homework. Oh, very good. Yeah, I really yes. enjoyed it. It's Thank like you. constantly running on like whenever I'm, I'm oh, working. Good. It's just been a background. It's oh, great. I, I like that. Okay, very good. Yeah, because we have had some wonderful people. And we were talking earlier about Will Allen and, and urban farming and urban agriculture. And Absolutely. of course, you're obviously very involved in that. Now tell us, Lee, is, your company is called Faithful to Foods. Yes. And you are bringing in artisanally produced product from... Italy. For the moment, it's uh, an Italian sourced line. Yeah, it's called the Scrumptious Pantry. And it's supposed to be or it is <laughs> an umbrella brand for family farmed foods. Mm -hmm. It's the idea to have the like this is radio. Um, so <laughs> maybe we explain to the uh, to the listeners that the packaging, the important part of the packaging is the farmer's face, the actual farmer's face yes. on every label. Because what the Scrumptious Pantry aims to be is to bridge the gap between a retail shelf and a packaged food product and the farmer. Uh huh. So you really have the from farm to table concept on a retail shelf. I like that. That's great. I love the. This, I'm looking right now. I'm holding a package of cookies in my hand. They're called Brutti Mabuoni, <laughs> traditional Italian hazelnut cookies. Mm. And I looked at the ingredient list, and it's three ingredients: hazelnuts, eggs, and sugar. I love that. Yeah, I, it, I should have written fresh eggs really because. That's one of the important things about all the people I'm working with is that they're really very focused on great quality, on not messing with the with the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is because often, you know, you could have your eggs and you could um, 
have the egg come in a milk container kind of thing. Yeah. Like, all right. They're using fresh eggs, for right. example. They're cracking the eggs. Yeah, they're they're taking the eggs. eggs out from under those hens. Oh, perfect. Isn't that great? Don't you love it when your cork breaks? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Rectech has a uh, corkscrew. You got a corkscrew out there, Nat? Uh, no. Okay. Bottles come already open. Okay. Very good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway... <laughs> That's a great start. I love that. Um, why don't we try the sun-dried tomatoes? Sure, then? absolutely. So what yeah. is that, a spread, or is that like actually tomatoes? Is well, it puree? It's it's minced up um, sun-dried tomatoes. So it's easy use. Yeah, it's a spread. It's yeah. from Antico Cole Fiorito. Fiorito. See, it's um, Fiorito. Roberta and Giulio are the two guys oh, that I you see, see on the so label. Oh, I see. They're so cute. Yeah. This is really nice. I like. I love your packaging. The well, branding is really nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's like it's so funny because um, you can see how distant people are from the people that farm the the product that goes yeah. into a packaged food. Because you know how many calls I've been getting or questions about, oh, who are the models on your packaging? You know, no kidding. Yes. Really. I'm like, there are no models. They're, not they're models. the farmers. <laughs> They're making it, man. <laughs> it's like it everyone great, seems to be expecting that whenever it comes in a in a packaged form. It's, um, you know, models are involved and there's no, like, the... Yeah, there's no connection. Well, I mean, in this country, of course, that is pretty much the, the paradigm. I mean, this is what we do here. You know, we have, uh, we have um, you know, products that come in that are uh, sourced from so many different... I mean, in other words, it's there are so many people involved in bringing um, a crop of wheat into packaged foods that there's, no, there's really nobody there to... to um, you know associate it with yeah and that is factory farms yeah and that is so sad because it's i mean that's how it all started um i was managing a vineyard a small vineyard biodynamic vineyard in tuscany Mm -hmm. and i was just so frustrated because you're torn between sales and marketing and 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 producing and being in the farm and spraying your 500 and doing what rudolf steiner told us to do um so it was just um, it's like this is this does not work. We need to create a togetherness of the farmers, and then because all the small farmers have the same problem, they eventually, um, you know, if we pull our forces together. So mm. what you're sampling now, um, basically, it's the sun-dried tomato spread, which is just minced tomatoes and the olive oil and oregano and some garlic. Yeah, it's good. And they're. Um, this is all estate-grown ingredients, so uh-huh. they're not using any other olive oil or any oregano. It's like all all estate-grown ingredients, and um, Yummy. it's on the pasta, which is um, a biodynamic pasta from Tuscany again. Um, why should we care that it's biodynamic? Sorry, I mean, why should we care that it's biodynamic? Can you can you explain why that would be important? Well, in my belief, biodynamic is the real, true empowerment of nature. Mm-hmm. Because in biodynamics, you are stepping back from telling nature how it should behave. Um, still, in organic, like the tradition, you can call yourself. Of course, this is this is a very difficult topic because often um, there are organic farmers out there that are non-interventionist. Um, mm-hmm. But you could be organic and still manipulate the course of nature using organic treatments, uh-huh. but still be invent like re- in, in, in intervening in the growing process, etc. To to a certain st- extent, whereas biodynamics really tries to take the human component out of out of farming, 
Which is... So aside um, from actually planting the seeds and keeping the furrows clean of weeds, there's... Or you leave the... We would leave the weeds. You would leave the weeds. We like, it's it's a, trying to create an environment in which... Um, it's like a, a holistic, a very holistic approach to, to growing. Um, and thus hoping to get terroir into the product, mm -hmm. which I think is a very important aspect of food. Um, that, you know, the product that you're eating... If you're getting it from another country or another state, or even if you're buying your local food, um, it's important that the characteristic of that terroir can be tasted. You know, mm -hmm. has, because otherwise, why would you be growing the same product um, and, and buying it? Like, why, for example, wine. Why would you get a wine from California if it would taste the same as the one in New York? So, so true. You know, earlier before we started the show, <clears throat> you and I were talking just briefly about the the whole role of importing and and moving product, not just from your area, but from you know across the country or across the ocean. <clears throat> and it it sort of reminded me of of um, a topic that we have addressed here quite a few times about the whole sort of locavore movement and this kind of religious fervor with which one embraces the local as if you should just completely abandon anything that is made anywhere else, even if it's the best there is. And I think that it's important to remember that, you know, we don't just, <clears throat> we don't grow um, watermelons here in the winter. Exactly. Um, and there's no reason not to support the economy that does. So why don't you talk a little bit about how the import-export business works for you and, and, you know, the kind of response you've gotten given the, the trendiness of, of local sourcing. <laughs> well, I, I totally believe in local. Um, I am munching happily um, on root vegetables uh, f for the last three months, I think. I think my diet was composed of potatoes and, and beans <laughs> and yams um, and carrots. And I um, got very creative and... Um, in uh, developing new recipes about those ingredients. And I, I think you can have a great local diet and fresh produce. I think there is no, I mean, yes, if you want to do prosciutto and melon, um, I think it's fair to say I want that melon to be maybe from California. Um, but on a general base, I would say whenever produce is involved, just for the quality of the produce or the, the vitamin content, the, the nutrition content, it'd be better if you buy it local because it's fresher. Um, so that is uh, without a doubt. But then I think what you do when you're living inland and there's no ocean, like you're never having fish. Right. Um, you happen to be in in the Midwest and you're never allowed to have olive oil. I just think that you can have these various, um, these various products from like, further away but whatever you buy make sure that you're you're buying products that have the inherent values of being from a small family farm um and that are farmed sustainably so try to know your farmer even though it's from california and you live in new york mm -hmm. so that's what like the whole scrumptious pantry thing is about trying to bridge that gap and have give people a chance to know their farmer for now, it's Italian product, and I am working very hard on getting the um, American-sourced line. So when you line up American sources here, you'll be selling them here in this country? Yes. Yeah, because, yes, yes. I mean, I can't imagine bringing product to Italy. No, well, I think, you know, there is some great products. Um, I would, if it were not so hard for import licenses, and um, 
I would love to bring American cheeses. They're so they're great cheeses. Like I think mm, that yeah. that would be yeah. a fun project to bring more American cheeses to Europe. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not going to afford them though. I mean, I can't even afford them here. <laughs> Sadly. I mean, not that they shouldn't make as much money as they can make, but really and truly. I mean, I can buy a piece of Taleggio here for a fraction of what it costs to buy something from, you know, Cowgirl Creamery or mm. one of the other great American cheesemakers. Well, they get a lot of breaks, you know, coming into this country tariff-wise and, uh-huh. you know, so they're kind of subsidized in ways that local farmers aren't. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So we're up against stiff competition price-wise, but the cheese here is phenomenal and I think can be equated with any cheese around the world. Absolutely. Oh, I think the quality is, is just as good as any cheese-making culture of the, you know, of centuries in age. Cheesemakers um, in Hudson Valley, there's just, they're proliferating right and left. Mm. Just we, when I started working with cheesemakers in Hudson Valley, there's about maybe 10, 12, and now there's about 25. So really We had your guy pieces. on last week, Patrick Manning. Hudson Valley. I Fresh. know. I heard Pat on the air. That's great. He was great. I hope he'll come back. He was a really good guest. Yes, he is. He's and the very dairy industry is something that I think really needs some really deconstruction. Needs to, <laughs> really needs to be supported. Local milk really needs to be supported. It does, and also just the whole sort of what's happened to the dairy farms in this country and why why it is so difficult to be a dairy farmer. Well, you guys, I know. I don't think that <clears throat> y'all talk about realize. that. No, I mean you know a dairy farmer uh, recently you know committed suicide in Copake. I do know. Oh that. yeah, that was a sad story. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually, uh, I get a newsletter every week or actually every day from this guy named John Ubaldo in in Cambridge, New York, and he runs an uh, an outfit called John Boy's Farm, and he's a former Wall Street trader or worked on in the financial sector. And after 2001, he quit and he bought his farm upstate and he's been farming ever since. And he's, he's a really, he's way into the Berkshire piggies and absolutely <laughs> loves his pigs. I mean, he's demented about his pigs <laughs> and um, gives us regular updates on the new porkers and, and how the babies are doing and whether or not the mothers are performing and so on. And he was actually selected uh, by the USDA to be a Berkshire breeder um, in this country and to create a sort of gene pool that can then be sold to other farms. Go ahead. But I find that what you're just mentioning, I find very interesting <clears throat> because that connection of the Wall Street, successful Wall Street type, going and changing the face of agriculture, which is exactly what is like in Italy, all these farmers that I'm bringing in, these small organic biodynamic farms with like a certain amount of craziness because it's hard to be a biodynamic farmer. You're getting up oh, at yeah. four in the morning to like before you know, the sun rises because you have to spray 501. Um, and that's like manually going up the hills and spraying out of a little copper tank on your back. Um, so that is, it's hard work. Um, the pasta guy. Five hundred and one. Yeah, it's a, the biodynamic. Rudolf Steiner has defined a series of treatments, and they're called five hundred, five hundred and one, and they have different. It's like uh, it's all natural, um, all natural. Um, but no, isn't that intervening? Uh, they're like it, it, I mean, not to play cat and mouse here, but I mean, no, like, yeah, that's yeah, a it's little... a good point. It's a good point. <clears throat> it's, inter- it's intervening in the sense that it's intervening. Yes, it's intervening, but it's intervening in a sense to create uh, a more holistic system in the whole. Like, for example, they'll do, we'll do cover crops and then we'll spray. We'll, these cover crops will be, um, how do you say, turned under the, the soil yeah. to have a green, um, have a green manure kind of thing. Yeah, sort of like a composting exactly, effect. Yeah, compost in the, in the soil. <laughs> and then you're spraying um, on that one to kick off the composting effect. It's not 
like spraying something to have an impact on the plant. It's just trying to create um, an environment in which the plant then, because you have a better soil quality, um, the plant can then take from a richer soil what it needs when it needs to. And like, for example, the 500, which we're using for the, for the, for the cover crop, um, to spray on the cover crop, we're using 60 grams to dilute it in water for a hectare. Uh-huh. So that is really like, so it's completely minimal. It's just like a microbiological sort of kick-starting the, uh-huh. the, the green manure. So yes, it's, inter- it's interventionist, but it's not interventionist in a sense. I'm intervening on the plant, trying to get the plant to do something. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the, the, Carlo, for example, he's a, a guy who left the finance world uh-huh. uh, to do the pasta. The um, Roberto and uh, Julia that we just tried the sun-dried tomato spread, um, they are people that had careers in IT before. Um, and they have another couple, they're an advertising, they had an advertising agency, and mm-hmm. they said, like, they can't take this anymore. And I see that a lot. <laughs> What's wrong with advertising? No, no, it was not against <laughs> no, advertising. <laughs> I was not, my parents I wouldn't be both, able to take it anymore either. I mean, it's, my parents know. are both in advertising and love it, and advertising fed me well for um, a long time, so I'm not complaining about advertising, absolutely not. But um, <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> the advertising police aren't listening. <laughs> It's just like they wanted a lifestyle change. And those are the farmers that are most progressive of all. Like, yes, I mean, I don't want to say that, like, the traditional farmers are not receptive to the changes. But I feel that... A lot of them aren't, though. I feel that (laughs) most of the sort of input, like, comes from people that are outside of the agriculture world Mm -hmm. and stepping in and reviving sustainable agriculture. Um, coming from completely different backgrounds. I I'm find that fascinating. I'm not even sure it's reviving. I actually think it's a whole new thing. I mean, the only reason it was sustainable, quote unquote sustainable, in the sense that they didn't use chemicals and you yeah. know all this stuff, is because they didn't have them. I mean, you know, nitrate, you know, fertilizers didn't come around until after the war when sure. we stopped building bombs and started yeah. making fertilizer out of it. So, um, you know, I, I think that in a, way, in a lot of ways, what's happening in agriculture now has never ever been done before in the sense of trying to sustain the crop yields, the high crop yields, uh, while at the same time not, um, you know, forcing the soil to produce more than it can without uh, losing its nutrients. So there's a lot of things that are happening now that I don't think have ever happened before. And I think they're happening because, you know, plant science, soil science, chemistry, um, you know, plant genetics, all of that. Those fields have grown so much Mm -hmm. since World War II. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thanks to companies like Monsanto or Norman Borlaug, I mean, you know, people get mad about that stuff. But actually, you know, when you're talking about feeding the giant population in this world, you kind of need some of that science. I mean, not everything can be grown on a small farm by, you know, somebody who's, you know, spraying 501. I mean, I love that idea, but I don't see that as something that's going to feed this population. And certainly if I were living in a developing country mm -hmm. and I was given my choice between that and something that I knew was going to produce X number of bushels per acre for my incredibly hungry, potentially starving population. I, I think unless unless the biodynamic well, I, method can be shown yes. to produce the same quantities. In France, for the wine, I, I, don't, I, have, I know the numbers. Like I don't know the numbers, but I know for sure that um, in France, where biodynamic in winemaking has mm-hmm. been going on for a long time, yield actually goes up um, using biodynamic methods. And... Um, 
So why aren't they more widely widely used? Because people think biodynamic producers are a crazy sect of people that are dancing in the nude when the moon shines in a certain... <laughs> well, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, don't burst my bubble, Lee. I thought they were. <laughs> no, it's really... You tell people that you're doing biodynamics and you're giving this look because it's a holistic approach mm-hmm. that takes into consideration, you know, that oh, yeah, plant grows differently phases. than the lunar phases. And sure. that in our sort of world that is detached from nature and kids don't even remember take a plant that's sitting on the windowsill and the plant if the sun goes up you know the plant will open up and will turn with the sun you know that is just a very simple example that yes you know whatever's going up on in the in the lunar system and with the sun affects the growing um and that's maybe an idea about when you pick you know do you pick when all the powers in the in the fruit or do you pick when all the power is in the root? If you want a, a vegetable or if you want something that, you like an apple, you might want to pick that when there's more of the powers in the fruit, right? Mm-hmm. So, And that's determined, you determine that by the, the by lunar, the lunar phase? phases? Yeah. And that is just... I mean, um, that makes sense to me. I, I, it I, makes perfect sense, into but that. people that are well, so detached from the plants on the windowsill, because they don't even have plants on their windowsills anymore, and they're just giving it this very strange look. And um, yeah. Well, we're working on that. Eventually, we're going to... I mean, it seems to me that if a system like that can actually boost production yield without damaging the soil and the water table, then, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really equate to me why, people, why more plant scientists and more people in commodity agriculture are not paying more attention to these methods. There is a great well, the documentary. Question. There's a great documentary. Um, I have to admit that I don't know either the name of the documentary, <laughs> oh, nor the name of the guy, but... <laughs> I'm going to call in and let you know. But it was know. really good. It, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an Australian. Okay. Um, one okay. of the pioneers of biodynamics like. um, that decided, like, at the age of 70, um, that he was going to India and help Indian farmers embrace biodynamic agriculture. And he has completely turned Indian agriculture around that is completely depleted of nutrients after being locked in with our big chemical friends um and he like people love him in india he just goes from one town to the next and then he'll be back a year later and all the success stories that he has created with those farmers he worked like in that little town like will trigger 20 more farmers coming up to him and say can you teach us biodynamics because we want to do this because you know it gives life back to the soil and we actually like but the problem is with chemicals you just have to put more on top more on top more on top on top and eventually that soil erosion and there's like it's so depleted if you go in our vineyard i'm I'm still saying our you know i'm sorry (laughs) um in our vineyard we um have um our estate an organic estate and then further further down bordering is a um conventional estate and just for fun, I took soil samples. Um, and it's just like, you know, that conventional soil, that is, I don't know what that is. That is no soil. It's just a cl- clump of very weird, very weird, yeah, very weird shades. And then you have like little clusters of like something dark and oily in there. And I'm like, ugh. Um, so that is, I mean, all you need to do to convince herself that <clears throat> biodynamic creates a completely different soil environment is take two soil samples. And that's all. And just the look of them. Just look at, look at them. There's yeah. like, 
You don't even have to do a chemical yeah. analysis. No, just looking at it is enough. And yeah, so um, I'll get that. I'll get you that 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 movie. So you might <laughs> yeah, you you do that. <laughs> you track that down. Might be able to uh, give well, your let, listeners. Let's talk some a little idea. bit more about uh, like your brutti mabuoni. So who who where are you selling? Is this stuff available in the United States now? Yeah. And where can we find it? Well, uh, the um, most of the like I work with small independent retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, again. What I want to do here is create a community between the consumer, the small farmer, and the small retailer. Right. Because also we need small retailing outlets to have you know, yeah, to support small that. farmers. Because <laughs> small farmers will never be in the position to produce on a large scale for big for national chains. Yeah. Right. So um, I think it's important that there's a, a system, and we're creating a system there. So um, there's several small retail stores um that here in manhattan in manhattan no we're in um the east coast where you would have to go to maryland <laughs> um but um like we have in chicago we have some in san francisco we're kind of sp- spreading out where we're mm-hmm. focusing on the midwest right are you now, going really. to the um to the big food show fancy food show absolutely in, uh, i Javis am or do you did, did jake a booth there or are you yes 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 no it did the fancy food show is like basically Back to the idea that I want to—I'm working on the uh, on the American source line. Last year, the fancy food show—I was so frustrated. I mean, the fancy food show initially five years ago. I was here um, traveling it because a friend of mine had told me to come and see the fancy food show. She was a buyer for um, William Sonoma. She's like, "You have to go and see the fancy food show. It's yeah. really so interesting." And I was going through the fancy food show. Like, I mean, I I know these brands. These are big industrial brands from Europe. Why is this fancy food? Like this is not fancy. This is not. So then my it's fancy for us Yanks. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but this is nothing special, you know. It's not specialty food. And then my uh, friends that I knew that own retail stores here in in the U.S. I'm like, well, if you have those, if you have access to those products, why don't you bring it? And that was when I was starting to think about what kind of system could we create as small farmers to you know get out of that vicious cycle. And so it all comes fast together that I started um, bringing the scrumptious pantry to uh, to the U.S. And uh, so this year, last year, I'm back at the fancy food show, and it's all tea, chocolate, and barbecue sauces. Yeah, it was. It was. It's funny how those themes present mm. themselves. It was tea and yeah, chocolate. Yeah, but then last where year. is where is the terroir in American specialty foods? Like again, like there's like only in the cheese. It's there's peach salsa. In from Maine, from Georgia, from Florida, and I don't know where could you do peach salsa? Seattle, so it's just like, and that was the one that was the the last turning point when I said, no, I got to get working on that American line really, really <laughs> fast because I'm so sure that there's all these great farmers out there that you know do a great product and they have no chance to be present at an event like this, which attracts all the buyers of. The small retailers and the small retailers can't get the product because the farmers can't present themselves. And it's just like. So you're going to be sort of like a Patrick Martins, basically. You're going to go around to all these small farms and say, I want to buy your I want to broker your product. You're going to I mean, I call him a meat dealer. You're going to be some other kind of a dealer. Yeah. But so what kind of products? (laughs) What kind of products are you looking for in the United States? Well, I'm I think it's important to get people to cook. So um, my experience from the Italian line is you have no idea how hard it is to sell rice, risotto rice, 
to Americans because they're like, oh my god, it's like how do you, what do you have to do? It's like you sauté an onion, uh, you put some cheese in it, and you just you know have some broth, and that's all you you need. And people are so intimidated uh, by cooking that I think if we want to get people back to cooking, we have to give them what I call semi-finished products, like mm -hmm. a, a semi semi-convenience based. Um, for example, we're here like I was at the Union Square Market yesterday with all these apples around, right? So I think one product could be an apple pie filling because mm -hmm. a, a cook or like a home cook or a person that never cooks, maybe buy, like doing the whole apple pie from scratch is a little too much because they have to buy the sugar, the raisins, the almonds, and then what to do with all the other raisins because they never use raisins usually, right? So if you had a jar with an apple pie filling, that comes from a small farmer who, you know, you know the apples are great apples and he has this great little product and there's the recipe for the pie crust on the back. Well, you know, most people might have flour and some butter in their, in their pantry. And then maybe we can get someone to take that leap. It's a quantum leap for lots of people to do an apple pie by opening a jar of apple pie filling and pouring it in the crust. But whoa, they did their own crust and they put it in the oven and waited for 40 minutes rather than going to the supermarket, right? Yeah. So this is, these are the products that I'm kind of trying to. So how would, how would a farmer get, get the processing facility? I mean, that's one of the things, like I went to this uh, agricultural conference last week in, uh, in DC. And um, the, the USDA thing, one? Yeah, the USDA conference. And um, one of the things that came up, there were very few small farmers there, just for starters. This was really, this was all about the big boys. Um, but, one of the things that came up uh, and which I kept asking, <laughs> I mean, I asked Cisco, I asked Kathleen Merrigan, I asked um, several other speakers, you know, in the Q&A thing, like, where are the processing facilities? That's where are the problem. warehouses? I mean, yeah. you can't, They're virtually you know, non-existent. And this is, this to me is like what you're talking about is some, is, is part of a whole movement in this Absolutely. country that everybody wants to connect these regional. And last week we had uh, Christine Grace on from the New York State Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, we were talking about the same thing with her. It's like all these small farmers have product, but they don't have any place to store it. And they have no place to process it. Yeah, and, that, yeah. that and they is, have no time to process it. And they don't. Exactly. They, they don't have the skills or the expertise. Personally it speaking, sometimes I do not want. I want to know that my product that is coming in a jar has been properly canned, properly sterilized, is free of pathogens. I mean, sure. you know, ensuring food safety is something that is a huge part of this puzzle, and that means it has to go to a, a plant that is subject to inspections. And this, there's no, there's doesn't appear to be any money in anybody's budget for this. Um, and farmers, of course, don't have the money to do it themselves. They, I mean, they can't put up the money to create a facility like this. So well, I, think, I think it's going to take a smart venture capitalist um, and people like you to put those pieces of the puzzle together. Because otherwise, there's a I very really interesting model happening. in um, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Oh yeah, where they have a processing facility and they they're also a business incubation center mm -hmm. and they help specialty food producers like yourself and farmers figure out what to do with their product cool and then well, they also talk to them process. yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's very it's I, i'm actually wanting to go up there and see it myself mm. yeah some of, i mean we have let's lots do of it melissa let's take a road trip okay katie that would be fun who's gonna drive and who's gonna drink <laughs> i think we know that <laughs> 
All right, I'll I drive. hate to drive. Oh, I love to drive. <laughs> Absolutely phobic about it. Always oh. have been. Okay. Well, I think there's lots of commercial kitchens popping up um, from people that, you know, want to give that space. But lots of these commercial kitchens are more like in the city areas and helping like little yeah. pastry makers or like little catering businesses, etc. Um, <laughs> it is, um, for example, in the Midwest, uh, I have met lots of farmers that said I, well, great I have products I have ideas I have recipes because I would not want to buy someone's produce and say okay this is uh, the produce and I want to do this with it I that is not what the scrumptious pantry is about the scrumptious pantry is about catching food culture and terroir in a jar so I would want a farmer who has this great recipe because his family has been doing this with that product for the last 200 years, not 100 years, 50 years. <laughs> yeah, this is America. Come right. on. <laughs> Short, short term. We don't have that much history. Here. And, put, and put that in a jar. So, um, but like lots of the food processing facilities that are out there in the countryside have been snatched up by the big food processor guys. They basically, they're an exclusive for the big guys that can. And it's a problem, but there are lots of farming, farmers that are, interested in doing it and eventually have the chance to add a commercial kitchen. It's not a huge scale, but there are some farmers that I know of, for example, in the Midwest that have added a commercial kitchen facility. And my idea is because it's a huge investment. Oh, huge. Um, and no farm can really use that commercial kitchen year round. So what I'm sort of trying to do is like match the commercial kitchens that are available and with the know-how that is available, because you need to be a master canner and all that stuff in order to be able to process that, match a farm that has the know-how and maybe wants to leverage it and like amortize the investments with another farmer that has the idea or has the product but does not have the know-how. Mm-hmm. And that way, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. It's a return on invest on the kitchen for the person, like the farmer that did the step to build the kitchen. And the other people, you know, don't have to built their own because otherwise if every farm had their commercial kitchen it doesn't make sense to me no it doesn't there are quite a few in upstate new york i mean my boyfriend and i frequently travel around when the weather is nice and and go to you know farms like pick your own places and stuff they often have those commercial kitchens and they're producing you know preserves mm-hmm. and exactly jellies and jams and pies and they're you know <laughs> and it's like the one i one question that i encountered when i was like talking to people about you know ne- needing to find these producers and i was looking for input um and and someone looked at me and said, like, well, why would any farmer do that? Like, support their own competition. And I was looking at him and I was like, yeah, I don't think that is competition. Because even if we all, like all organic farmers in the United States pulled together and we did our little jars, it'd still not be enough. Yeah. There is no competition between, like, we're like this, there's absolutely no competition. Like, we're just like, we're no, the outcast, like, sort of holding <laughs> holding up, you know? It's like Asterix and Obelix. Do you have, how do you call these guys? Tintin. From Tintin. So, yeah. Yeah, the little, the little outliers. Yeah, so there's absolutely no need to be afraid of, I'm not renting out my commercial kitchen because that would eventually be competition. I don't think that concept of competition I don't think people would. Valid. I don't think people would respond that way anyway. Well, I got that question I mean, from someone. Like, well, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Yeah. Why would I work with somebody else's? Yeah. I don't know. You know, that's a, there's one in every bunch, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should take a short break um, so I can come back with my next guest. But let me um, urge people to visit your website. It's www.scrumptiouspantry.com. Yeah. 
And um, Lee Green, thank you very much for joining us hey, on the show today. This was a lot of fun having you on here. Thanks these products look fantastic. I'm loving these hazelnut cookies. Well, yeah. Enjoy yeah. them. And thank you for bringing the pasta. That was very thoughtful of you. So, Melissa, we'll, we'll be talking about our road trip, girl. That'd okay. be fun. I'm, I'm up for doing that. We can do a show on it then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, have a ha- I have a very cool new microphone, portable microphone that records very high quality. Uh, awesome. I know. A reconnaissance mission. Yeah, yeah. It's a road trip. All right, girls, thank you very much. And we'll be back in a few minutes with more of the main course. Our next guest is Ed Schoenfeld, restaurateur extraordinaire. See you in a few. I dive to the bottom and I never come up all oh, how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? If I had a woman, she was tall. She make me think about my parasol Or how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? No lady by the name of Jane I hit a doctor right off her cane. Oh, how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? Mama, mama, look at sis. She's out on the levee doing the double.
right on your mind I'm eating and drinking, having a lovely time How long But you'll come home some alone someday. Oh, morning, uh. I'm coming home to my baby some alone someday. Oh, someday. What kind of day, girl? Sweet day. Some alone someday. Mississippi River. What about that? So deep and wide. I can't see my good man on the other side. Yeah, enough. But I'm coming home to my baby. Some all alone someday. Ah, oh, sing it, girl. Sing it. Someday. What kind of day? Sweet day. I've got a man here in Georgia Partner, he's crazy about me Ain't gonna want to be crazy about me Someday What kind of day is that? Sweet day Oh, sing it for me Some alone someday Oh, sing with the spirit I'm coming home to my baby Some alone someday Georgia Slim played. Where were you? I don't know, girl. Maybe. Couldn't tell you. When that Ellen in left the shed, you were standing in your back door with a hung down head. Ah, uh, stand by now if you want to hear it again. Someday. Someday. Tell her what I do. I love my Tell her what I do. What made me love her. And I guess we're back. Are we back? We're back. 
We are back. It is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we are broadcasting from the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn, 261 Moore Street. My engineer and producer today is Nat Wiener. Thanks, Nat. And um, my guest for this hour is Ed Schoenfeld. Hi, how are you? Ed, it is such a pleasure to welcome you into this show. I know you've been on uh, the network before with Josh, but um, I'm sure we'll have something completely different to talk about. Oh, so, <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> well, I suspect that there will just be no end of topics. I have the feeling that we're going to have a lot of fun here. Um, I should mention that we have a sponsor today. It is uh, Sam Edwards of Edwards uh, and Sons down in Surrey, Virginia, um, which is where my, my AWOL co-host Patrick Martins is uh, building himself a new distribution center. Um, so that's an exciting development for Heritage Foods USA. So Ed, let's talk a little bit about your, let's first of all, Give us a short version of the bio here, just so that for anybody who hasn't tuned in to you on Josh's program, really gets the full panoply of experience that you bring here. You know, I'm an old guy. The short bio isn't so short. but uh, <laughs> You're not that old. Well, you know, I, I have a young life. Yeah, you do. Um, well, I'm a Brooklyn boy. Yeah. I... Uh, Loved food and cooking when I was really young. I used to work with my grandmother Goldie on a six burner chambers range making blintz wrappers. And I got to knowing how to work uh, six crepe pans at a time when I was about 10 years old. Wow. Used to make about four blintz wrappers for her and two for me. Uh huh. You know. um, <laughs> Cute. I went to private school here in New York City where it wasn't cool to study food. I was really interested in food and I have had a kind of a self-educated quest for having a deep knowledge about lots of different types of food and cooking. And, you know, as you know, I, I started working with Chinese food when I was a, a young guy in yeah, the very 20s. Young. That was one of your first, that was sort of your first professional project was working in the Chinese food idiom, right? Right. I, the, the, my first professional project was becoming the assistant to a man named David Kay, mm -hmm. who was a seminal person in the... Chinese restaurant business in New York City and in the United States. Oh, I think he's credited with opening the first Szechuan restaurants in the United States. Wow. And this is going back to 1968. Yeah. And um, I became his assistant when I was 21 or 22, and he decided to lease a space on Third Avenue, and I spent six months doing the pre-opening of the restaurant. I was the only Caucasian guy involved. They made me the host because I spoke English better than the next person, <laughs> a lot better, and um, it wasn't too hard. They were all immigrants there. <laughs> yeah. And um, two weeks after we opened, we got a four-star review from the New York Times. And what was the name of that restaurant? That restaurant was called Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan. It's really kind of a, a fun story, but uh, Szechuan restaurants hit the United States in the late 60s, and two of the most successful restaurateurs by the early 70s saw the future, and they decided there was going to be a lot of competition. So they went back to Taipei independently of each other, these two guys who were competitors. And they went to see what was happening there, and they both discovered the same restaurant. And they both looked around the community and found chefs who had been employed there. The restaurant was called uh, uh, Peng Yuan, Chef Peng's Gardens. It was a restaurant that had opened in the 1950s. And it was a Hunanese-style restaurant. And these guys both said, oh, Szechuan food is happening in the United States. Let's try Hunan. So they each found employees who had been trained by Chef Peng, knew his repertoire of uh, recipes, brought individuals back here, and within about two or three months of each other, these two uh, entrepreneurs um, opened 
Hunan restaurants, and each restaurant got reviewed by the New York Times, and each restaurant got a four-star review. Incredible. And it really was a very exciting time in the Asian food business, and that's almost, the, to my mind, the golden age of Chinese restaurants that we've had in the, in the United well, States. Well, I think Chinese restaurants have undergone a sort of a sad devolution. Um, in that's the a sense, good word to use, devolution. <laughs> in the sense that, um, you know, those sort of white tablecloth Chinese restaurants that were the sort of beginning of, of the interest, say, in, in ethnic foods in this country. Because I think that most people... Um, didn't we just simply didn't have access to ethnic restaurants didn't have access to ethnic products the way we do now and so chinese food in a lot of ways i think was the first introduction for many people to um things that were not part of say their grandmother's repertoire it, it, it defined exotic you yeah know, in a, totally in a day-to-day real-time culinary sense right? yeah yeah, and people began taking lessons in Chinese food, and and I remember coming here when I was nine years old, and my, my parents had a wonderful friend named Artie Josephson, who lived down way before it was trendy on Tompkins Square Park. He was a starving artist, and he used to take me to Chinese restaurants in Chinatown where he was friends with the guys. And to me, it was just absolutely dazzling, and he would often work in the kitchen to pay off his restaurant tab because in those days you could still do that um but (laughs) especially if you were struggling artist who was really interested in the cuisine but to me it was like it was the absolute ne plus ultra of exotic and cool and unbelievably groovy and of course the food was delicious you know i i mean chinese food is famous for adapting to different cultures and clearly in the united states we had our a Chinese community who came here really in, in the 18, in 1849, 1850 to work on the railroad was mm-hmm. Cantonese for, by ethnicity and regionality and, um, you know, kind of planted the seeds of what we call Chinese American food. Well, and that's then when we, chop suey came into being, right? Because well, there were chop well, yeah, suey I houses, mean, right? Yes. I mean, that's exactly right. But like many of these things, it has its roots in kind of real more real Chinese cooking. And, you know, people talk about American Chinese food as a totally different cuisine. And and to be honest, you know, it's not. I mean, I can remember being uh, in Beijing and going down from my hotel and going to the local restaurant on a Sunday when I just arrived there from the States. And, you know, the menu wasn't so different than the Cantonese restaurant that I go to in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in Beijing. And, you know, the quality of the soft noodles with pork was pretty similar i mean right. you know not that there aren't great heights available and, and you know china's an incredibly exciting place to be right now i i haven't been there enough but i you know i just know from the times i have been there and into it there's a, a great deal of growth thank god because we went through a great period where you know from about 1949 onward where in mainland china in any event uh culinary life was fundamentally changed and uh not for the better right well, because access to ingredients became very truncated, right? By well, the access to ingredients the was, was truncated. Collective farming and that I must mean, have had a huge all, impact on it. You know, I mean, let's face it, fine Chinese cooking, uh, fine cooking is very often uh, a wealthy man's game. Sure. You know, from rarefied ingredients to, you know, very fine technique. I mean, it, it's an art. And, and the leisure time to do it. And the leisure money yeah. to support it. So in, in China, the best chefs traditionally worked for wealthy people uh-huh. uh, or people who appreciated them, you know, patrons. Yeah. 
And that whole system is something that w- was changed fundamentally uh, starting in October of 1949 and disrupted. And there was a diaspora of chefs and, and people who were interested in Chinese cuisine that spread around the world. And um, in China itself, things changed. And even home cooks during the 50s when they had the Great Leap Forward, they went into people's houses and took their woks and stoves and melted them. And people were eating out of large communal kitchens. Mm-hmm. So even if someone in your home was a really good cook, they might still be cooking, but I, I think things changed. Yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to be getting interested in Chinese food in a period of time in the United States where we had an influx of, of really high-quality chefs in the late 60s and early 70s mm-hmm. who had been prohibited from coming to the United States up until 1965 when we changed our immigration laws. So suddenly a class of people came into this country. This, is, this kind of coincided with the growth of, of regional ethnic Chinese cooking here. This is why we started getting Szechuan restaurants and Hunan Yes, chefs, where you had because the real, yeah. they were allowed to come here for the yeah. first time. And... Um, it took off so much that the quality of the food ever, after over a 10-year period got diluted because chefs who only had a, a relatively small amount of training became entrepreneurial and went to work for themselves and were quite successful, even though they may not have learned enough of their uh, craft or, or certainly compared to earlier generations. Yeah. And their teachers, when they came here in the late 60s, early 70s, were already in their 50s. They left China in 1949. Mm-hmm. This was at least 20 years later. So that generation of chefs that was here then was around for a 10-year period, and I was lucky enough to meet many of them and learn from them and develop a... a, I was exposed to a quality of cooking that was, you know, pretty much as good as it gets. Yeah. Which is the basis, part of the basis for the work that I do and and the work that I've done in my career in the business and setting up and imagining food businesses and restaurants. Since you did, since you had that seminal experience with David Kay in the beginning, what were, what are some of the highlights of your, of your career since then in terms of, of the Asian, of, of Asian restaurants, but then also you work in many idioms. So let's let's talk a little bit about what, where things are going, have gone from there. Well, you know, I spent a, a, 10 to 12 year period uh, just working in operations, operating dining rooms, typically where I, where I was the only Caucasian person in the business. And they were fine quality Chinese restaurants, the Shanli restaurants, that in those days, as I just explained, had really good chefs. Yeah. And um, so I got to enjoy um, working in one of the best dining rooms in the country in the type of food that we offered and being in New York City and getting to just have life flow through our dining room. You know, the people you see in a four-star New York City restaurant are amazing. And I was a very young guy when I started, so I had a chance to come in contact with all kinds of, you know, iconic people that are, you know, I never would have dreamt I, I would have met, but, you know, Aristotle Onassis or Alfred Knopf or... Um, Tennessee Williams, or oh, Lillian Hellman, people like yeah. Andy Warhol, real people, people. You know, you mean I, not really, not Lilo, L- Lindsay Lohan, or or Britney. Um, <laughs> you know that too. <laughs> to me, the whole chain. The whole, I mean, just this is a short digression here, but I, I must digress and say that that you know the idea that you you know you're saying I've met people like Alfred Knopf or Lillian Hellman, and I'm thinking nobody you know under the age of whatever 
A, even has a clue who these people are or would find it exciting to meet them. Well, you know. Which just goes to show you how different strokes for different folks. Our- we live in a culture that's sadly, um, you know, based on reality TV. and and Well, it values glitz over, over actual achievement, which is, I think, kind of um, and not a metaphor. And not for- that I don't appreciate both. Yeah, of course. Um, who doesn't? You know, I mean, it, I, I, it's I fun. love those. The movie star thing is fun. But, you know, as you get older and you've seen many generations of, of people in the limelight from different walks of life, um, you know, you come to appreciate all that in a certain context. Yeah. And it's it's extraordinary to me how how uh, much younger culture that I don't know about as, you know, my, my children or generation younger than them has, uh, has its stars. Mm-hmm. And my awareness of them uh, is different than it was earlier in my life. You know? <laughs> and of course, different things are important. But, I, you know, I had a very fun culinary life in, in those days. Uh, I ran this restaurant, Uncle Ty's, and then we ran, I worked at the Shumley restaurants and opened up the Shumley restaurant across the street from Lincoln Center. And yeah. was, I had a chance to know a lot of the stars in the opera and the music world and, you know, cultural world so that was fun and all the time my work was in the front of the house usually running restaurants but my love has always been food yeah and i've been cooking pretty much every day since i started in the business um you know in in the very early 70s and uh i still you know i kind of feel like i never work because my work and my in my play are very are pretty much the same intertwined right yeah and um you know, I'm here talking to you in, in beautiful Bushwick. Who would have thought, you <laughs> at, know? At, at the gorgeous Roberta's uh, restaurant. Yeah. Well, uh, you just know, the fact I that... see the fire burning right in front of me <laughs> brightly, you know. I mean, Well, we should bad. remind that, I mean, the way we met, actually, was you giving me and a few other lucky people a cooking lesson in classic Chinese culinary technique. Yeah, you know, that was a fun class. That was a very fun class. I loved it. I, I really don't normally teach very much, and... Um, if I do teach people, I like to teach people who really are interested. You yeah, know, and motivated. of course. Yeah. And we actually haven't seen each other since then. That's so right. I haven't gotten any feedback on the class. You know, <laughs> maybe that at- velveting technique was something that really has uh, brought my my uh, Asian cooking in general. I cook a lot of Asian food, oh, yeah. not specifically Chinese. Um, I'm much more in tune with sort of the Thai Vietnamese palette of flavors, um, but the velveting technique, which is a, a way of, of That's rendering um, animal proteins into something incredibly savory and succulent and soft, it, it turns white meat into an object of desire instead of one of <laughs> yeah, you know pushing it on the other side of the yeah, plate. Right, 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 right. Yeah, chicken. I mean here. Right? Yeah, no. Well, but I mean, it did wonders for pork. It was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I my who figured that out? What is the chemistry of that let me just explain that velveting is taking a mixture of cornstarch and egg white and marinating animal proteins in that and salt and salt thank you salt's really important and um and it makes the meat incredibly tender and juicy i mean it just it transforms the texture in a way that is almost indescribable well you know what is it that does that well it's a combination of, of things you know the salt is and i wish i were more of a food chemist but, uh, we'll have to get Harold McGee on right, this next exactly. time. <laughs> Clearly salt denatures the protein. Mm-hmm. So it's like brining in that sense. Um, it's also the fact that when you cook food that way, you're surrounding it in oil or yeah. water. And 
rather than counting on the radiant heat coming off this walk surface and the constant tossing of food to transmit the heat, you're having the heat transmitted by the, whatever medium the food is floating in, whether that's hot oil or hot water. Right. And if you stir it a little bit in there and it keeps the temperature equal, you are cooking all those pieces at exactly the same rate. So you can get a precision of texture of just, you know, a point, I guess yeah. would be a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and it works really well for a lot of types of uh, protein. I velveted some, um, my wife brought home a piece of cod from Fairway the other day. Mm -hmm. I love the meat department at Fairway. I don't love the fish department at Fairway. Okay. And piece of cod was, I guess my word, in my brain to describe the cod was edible. <laughs> not, not you know, the fish that I'm used to getting maybe at the green market from the Blue Moon oh, yeah, coming in from the North Fork of Long Island. But velveting worked beautifully for that fish. Huh. It's a wonderful thing to do with fish fillet. In fact, it's a good test of a very good chef, of an Asian chef, because when you have raw fish, it's extremely resilient. As soon as you uh, heat it up and cook it, it becomes very soft and flaky and falls apart. Yeah. This Chinese culinary technique of velveting, when it applies to fish, you're setting the texture of it by cooking it in water or oil. Yeah. And it's just about done. Then you're taking it out, and then you clean out your pan, your wok, or whatever pan you're using, and you make a sauce and maybe some vegetables and some garlic and ginger and then some soy and stuff. Yeah. Well, you, then you put your fish back in. To coat that fish with sauce is a real trick without breaking the pieces of fish. I was going to say, how do you do that? Because if you're mixing it with vegetables, all that stuff is going to bruise it and break very, it out. Very carefully. And yeah. You have to put the starch in in just the right way. And you have to know how to toss food with your wrist. And you have to know to just toss it once or twice and and to kind of have the sauce thicken up around it. it it's There's a lot of technique. There's and a lot technique. And a lot has to do with the vegetables you're cooking with it and whether or not they're going to exude additional moisture. Yeah. Once you sauce it, because that'll dilute the sauce. So when I'm looking to hire a good Asian chef and say to them, you know, they want to cook something, one of the things I say is, well, why don't you cook me a dish of fish fillet? Yeah. It's a really good test to, to see someone's technique, to see if they're able to coat the food, the fish with food, whether the pieces are broken up. I mean, not, sure. not with food, with sauce and, and with the other vegetables. Yeah. So... Velveting is pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was amazing. That and the other thing that you taught me that I found very useful and, and something that I, is always in the front of my mind now is setting the texture and then creating the sauce mm -hmm. instead of... I it, With Western food, you it doesn't work that way at all. <laughs> you know that... I mean, it does, but it doesn't. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different philosophy towards... Because uh, your, your sauce is sort of inextricably bound up with what you're... I mean, if you're making some kind of a meat dish or something, it's... It's inexplicable, you know, it's inextricably right. it, bound with the cooking the, the, process. The deglazing of the pan. Absolutely. It's the juices of the meat. It's yeah. the extra flavoring agents. It's a long cooking of them together, possibly, you know. Um, and what you're talking about in Chinese food is how you get the, th the food set to the right texture, then clean out your pan and then make a sauce and yeah. toss it together. And, you know, not everything is like that, of course. But that's a very, No, very we did a braised dish, which was really excellent. That was delicious. With but, star anise and something else. With it was cinnamon good. and star yeah. anise and yeah. with uh, veal breast. We yeah, used. which was an interesting choice of meat, I thought, for that particular dish. I mean, 
Anyway, but so tell, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this and we'll, we only have another 45 minutes, Ed. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> but I want to move on because I know you've just been traveling and you've just come back from, I think you said, was it Spain? Yeah, I've been so uh, traveling. So moving from Asian to Western, more Western foods. And what was the purpose of that trip? I'm assuming it was business related, so. You know, actually I've been to Spain twice Um since september it's march now so in the last well it's almost still february but yeah tomorrow it'll be march yeah and um i was in southern spain in january just on fun in andalusia cordoba and granada mm. but this most recent trip was to the basque region and i went with a group of colleagues on a who were colleagues of mine by virtue of the fact that i am working on a consulting job and I'm working on a project that is located on 6th Avenue in Manhattan, 6th mm-hmm. Avenue and 30th Street. And it's developing a large complex there that is uh, part of and um, partly independent from a hotel above it. It's a big new 60-story building. The top is residential. The middle 30 floors are um, a, ho- a hotel. And we're creating a restaurant called, uh, well, it's a Bosque restaurant. Maybe it's going to be called Bar Bosque. Mm-hmm. And uh, underneath that is a place called Food Park, which is going to be a series of food stalls. Yeah. And um, actually, I'm working on Food Park primarily, and the Bosque restaurant is part of the same complex. So I went with a group of colleagues on a fantastic culinary trip uh, that anyone in their right mind would be extremely jealous of. <laughs> Um, to, to San Sebastian and to Bilbao. And um, the purpose was to really get a, a feel and a sense of what's going on there and to visit some of the best restaurants that we could and most interesting sure. restaurants. And we had great adventures. Uh, so besides Arzac, who else is really hot in Basque now? I mean, aside from Arzac? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he, he must have by this time spawned a whole generation of... Well, in, in Young, clu- including, you know, fabulous co- Ferran including, Andrea, too, yeah. right? I mean, um, he's closing his kitchen, though. I thought he had, uh, yeah, he is. But Arzac, you know, they're th- Arzac is 30 years older than Adria, yeah, right? And right now, uh, Arzac is run by his daughter, his I daughter, think, Elena, right? Elena, and him, both of them, yeah. Um, you know, we went to a few different places that I thought were in a contention, um. We went to one restaurant called Azurmendi, A-Z-U-R-M-E-N-D-I. It is in the suburbs of, um, I, I want to say, Bilbao. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they put us on a bus. It was dark. I, we, we went one way or the other, but it was just out of town. I think it was outside of Bilbao. It could have been just outside of San Sebastian, though. And it was a large winery that had a tasting room and a gigantic catering facility. I mean, it looked like one of these enormous uh, Chinese restaurants that, that seats a 1,000. Yeah. And a young chef who people buzz about being the next uh, Adria in, in Spain. And he's a... 29-year-old chef, his name, I believe, is A-X-T-E, his last name, Axte. I could be a little off, but I'm sure of Azurmende. And um, he, he did a tasting dinner for us that was very fun and modern and uh, exciting. Uh, we had something called the garden, 
which came out on a long black plate that um, was a pile of dirt. And growing out of the dirt were little miniature vegetables and flowers, and it was all edible. And the dirt was made with freeze-dried beets uh, colored with squid ink and spooned on top a emulsified sauce made out of olive oil and tomato water. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with that. You have to to know that... uh, you're talking to a man who who thinks like the you know one of the best things you could have is a plain peach on a plate. Yeah, right. Same here. Or or you know fantastic melon or you know, yeah, just something simple and plain. And and food, yeah, sort of recognizably what it is. Yeah, right. This was not that. No question about it. On the other hand, um, we had a wonderful oyster on the half shell that had a little confit of. Uh, sea beans, like of seaweed right next to it, just a little mouthful. Uh-huh. And it came out on a clear plate and it's kind of like a wide rim uh, glass soup bowl. But the part where the soup was supposed to go was much smaller than normal and it fit one oyster beautifully. And underneath the oyster were some rocks and it came out and there was a... Um, vapor coming out from underneath the rocks and it was sea foam vapor made no. from salt water no don't say <laughs> no not foam no it, it was it's, no vapor. it wasn't it wasn't foam it was like a gas it was oh, like please. a cloud oh my god and it smelled like seawater yeah and then you ate the oyster which so tasted like seawater a and full you, sensory experience it was um yeah. No one was massaging my feet. <laughs> so it wasn't really full. But, but then you don't taste too much with your toes. Yeah, right. Not usually. Oh, my God. So, I, you know, I just don't know what to think about stuff like that. I but, sort of love the inventiveness of you, it, but I hate the preciousness. You know, I, I hear you, but it's not an everyday occurrence. Really? You know? And uh, the food in Arzac was... Less precious, but definitely so. We got a great tour through the uh, laboratories of each of these restaurants. Oh, that would be where cool. they had yeah. you know centrifuges and all kinds of freezing and freeze drying equipment and very uh, cool tools for precision cutting. Yeah, and one of the in uh, one of the things that the Arzacs have is that they have a museum of ingredients. Oh, that is cool. And they have a little room, maybe a little bit bigger than the studio we're in, a little boxier. And so, you know, I want to say maybe it's uh, 20 feet square. And there are shelves all around the room. And it's dark, but they have LED lights. So the lights don't create heat. Yeah. And perfectly arranged are these little plastic boxes with labels on them. And each box has a different food in it, just a fairly small amount. And I don't know how many boxes there were, but I guess 3,500 maybe okay. 2,500, could have been 5,000. Right, right. And uh, Elena Arzak just gave us a little tour of, like, this is their... They have two person on creative duty all the time. They have about, I don't know, 35 or 40 seats in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And they had 30 people in the kitchen in the, the night we ate there. Wow. Uh, Ten of them were on stages, meaning yeah. they were interns, yeah. unpaid. 20 of them were on salary. And uh, the ten of us, we ate in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I had little rounds of apple, 
with a little circle cut out, almost like donut shape, with a little medallion of foie gras. That sounds nice. The apple little, was fried. I think the whole thing looked like it was cooked with a torch very quickly. Ah. Um, over there, we, one of the fun restaurants we went to uh, um, was called Eshtabari. And Eshtabari is quite famous among the food community and, and locals there. And it's a restaurant where everything is cooked over coal. Mm-hmm. And where it, you go to the around back of the restaurant, it's, it's, it's uh, 45 minutes to an hour outside of Bilbao in a 400-year-old building nestled in the most beautiful hills. It was a gray, rainy, cool kind of West Coast day there, you know, like felt like Seattle or Portland or something mm-hmm. in terms of the weather. And in back of the restaurant, he has different piles of woods and a funny-looking machine that essentially turns each of the woods into charcoal. And so he has an apple wood or an olive wood, and he cooks different foods over different types of charcoal. Interesting. And um, it's quite a famous place. Uh, and we had some extraordinarily simple food there. Um, and Yeah, because it was grilled. <laughs> grilled, but pre- first of all, there were only two people in the kitchen, and the restaurant had 125 seats. What a contrast. Um, you know, it was yeah. a little crazy. Yeah. But we had the same item at Arzak and Eshtabari, which were the famous little Spanish baby eels, uh-huh. which uh, are one of the great delicacies of that part of the world. Something I had never really not never really, never ever had the opportunity to eat, and they were in season then. Mm-hmm. Um, and in each, and the classical preparation of the eels is sautéed in olive oil with like a garlic parsley, almost like a, you know, garlic butter, but a, an olive oil-based version. Yeah. And the little eels are like pieces of pasta. They're shaped like linguine almost. Uh-huh. And, they're uh, that fine. They're that fine, and they're really expensive. Um, in the, I saw them for sale in a store, and a kilo was um, 900 euros. Wow. So f- That's over $1,000. $1,400. Yeah. For a ki- so like $600. So it's $700 a pound. pound. Right. So, and in each case, rather than cooking them in olive oil and garlic and parsley, each chef, and Arzak, the three-star Michelin, very, very uh, refined restaurant, and in Eshtabari, the very, very rustic restaurant, each had a little special custom-made colander with a long handle, and they put a little olive oil in the colander, and they tossed the um, eels right in the fire, right in, in, over the flame of cool. the fire oh, with a little yeah. Um, sea salt. Yeah. And in, I can see how that would be really in quite Ash spectacular. In we had a little pot. We each had our own little pot. And in um, uh, in Arzak, we had a little custom-made rice cracker that was particularly crunchy textured and a little orange colored and a little kind of exotic-y curried flavor, I, I th- huh. as I recollect. It was one of blended in with quite a few I, I can imagine. But what do the what do the eels taste like? You know, they were not at all fishy. Sort kind of, of mild, mo- I would right. think. You know, right? they were they were more a texture food mm-hmm. than anything. And you had no sense of like I mean, they're all whole. Yeah, so I mean, you're you don't care whether you're eating their brains or their I mean, they look you know, they look like they could be a bunch of little 
you know, just born fish. I'm sure, uh-huh. that's, I'm sure that's what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's fun to get to eat those. It was really, sure. know, really cool. And, and Even Esh- squeamish me would try that. And in Eshtaberry, we had another similar item just cooked over fire with sea salt of um, octopus. And the octopus were, octopi were quite small. They were each mm. the size of a marble. That I would like a lot, yeah. And then we had lots of normal things. Uh, one, one restaurant that we went to that was uh, one of the really coolest restaurants was essentially the local version of Peter Luger's. It was called Asador Julian. And um, it was an, an improbably funky, rustic place. You felt like you were going into like a uh, like a roadside uh, truck stop where the trucker was picking up cases of fruit to be delivered. Maybe it was a warehouse or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got in there and you realized that there was something else. There were a couple of rooms and there was a lot of liquor around and it looked like you were entering into a kitchen or something. And then you go into the dining room and you realize that the kitchen actually is this little fireplace in the corner where someone's stoking a wood fire and they have these big, thick, fat, lush rib steaks, bone-in steaks that are a couple of inches thick. And the beef is from Denmark. Really? And one of the people we were with uh, in our group was Mark Pastor, who's the owner of Pat LaFrida, one of the two partners in Pat LaFrida, who is arguably our top uh, prime beef purveyor. Yeah, your meat expert. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even he couldn't believe the quality of the meat. It was some of the best meat. What do you think made it so so great? These are pasture-raised, grass-fed, corn-finished. What are they they doing in Denmark that's special? You know, Julian didn't confide in me what his Mm. his steers ate. We were speaking different languages, but um, I mean, it ate like both very tasty uh, the way uh, pasture-fed meat would be but very rich the way corn fat and beef would be. Uh-huh. Uh, it was extremely, not like Japanese beef, but extremely rich meat. And, uh-huh. um, Unctuous. Yeah, and, and quite delicious. And what he did was he put up three thick steaks for us, and he kind of sequenced them to be done about 10 minutes apart. Perfect. So he took one steak, and then when it was time for us to eat, he cut it each into... I think there were about six of us, and he cut the steak into six chunks. Mm-hmm. He gave each of us a chunk, and then he took another one off and let it rest for a while. And then the third one he took off five or ten minutes later. And you know, it's all very low key. And the uh, the decoration there were were bottles of alcohol that had to have three to four decades of grease and smoke <laughs> on them. <laughs> They were the most extraordinary objects. I mean, they were... They were wearing sort of mantles on their shoulders. Of they were like, coppered. You know, they were... Really? They were really bronzed, you know. And it was <laughs> and it was a combination, you could just see, of tobacco and of the smoke from this grill that was part of the dining room. And it was quite a and small grill. And all the grill. grease off of the meat that, that vaporizes, yeah. And it was just a wild-looking place. And... Sounds and great. I'm, it, I'm dying to go there. You know, I, it was the one place I really wanted to go back to. Really? There were nine of us, and we caught a virus. And almost every one of us was sick. Or we were there for a 10-day period. And actually, every one of us got sick. Oh, what a drag. And uh, the day I was there, I was feeling better, but I wasn't, you know. Yeah. I was tasting, not dining. 
Yeah. And it was, I would like to go back to, you know, that, you know, and it's funny, you go there for a steak, but it was really good. And they had really delicious roasted, house roasted peppers that are in the indigenous foundation of the cuisine in that part of the world. And um, What kind of peppers are those? They're red peppers. They're not the piquillo? Yeah, they are the piquillo peppers, and, mm-hmm. and they have different varieties. Mm-hmm. And um, I love those. I think they're wonderful. I've never even had them fresh. I've only had them jarred, and I still think they're great. Right. Well, they, they what they do is they actually put up their own. Mm-hmm. So they, they are ripe at the end of the summer, however many weeks that is, you know, four, six, eight weeks, something right. like that. And these restaurants actually ro- roast them, skin them, uh, might even confit them some more with garlic uh, after yeah. the skins are off, and then they just uh, cover them in the same that same oil with olive oil, right? And um, they break them out, and here they put them out in a rectangular kind of pattern and bake them off, and <gasps> had some little garlic with them. They're they really good. They're a really good accompaniment for the meat. Yeah, I can imagine like a rich kind of smoky little bit spicy those piquillo peppers are a little spicy mm-hmm. well Delish. the ones here we had were mostly sweet but um deeply flavored mm-hmm. so that, that was a lot of fun and uh so is that gonna is all of this experience gonna translate into your uh the new food um what did you call it the well, food, food, food i'm working on a project called food park food park right yeah. and food park is con- is conceived to be a series of food stands. Yeah. Are you going to use, is there going to be well, some Spanish influence in that project? Or is this actually, all about the Basquez restaurant that you were developing as well? Uh, this was about the Basque restaurant. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that the two places are integrated with one another. They share kitchen facilities. I see. They're going to share supervisory chefs. They're going to share prep teams. So... It was it was important to understand the culinary side of the Spanish food in order to uh, integrate the culinary program for Food Park. I see. And Food Park's going to actually be in two different areas. Um, it has an indoor part and an outdoor part. As part of the development of this building, the developer built higher than maybe local code allowed. Yes, how I understand it in simple terms. And he's created, uh, in return for building high, he's gotten a lot of land that he bought, and he's created a new New York City park that's going to be built between 29th and 30th Streets. Wow, on 6th Avenue? Just between west 5th of 6th? Six, no, between 6th and 7th. Really? And Food Park... That is such a no-man's land. You're going to enter Food Park off of 6th Avenue, mm-hmm. and it goes through the building, and it's going to have uh, five stalls in it and a bar. Uh-huh. And then you can exit through the back of Food Park into this park. And in the park, there's going to be another, I want to say, 8 to 12 food stands. Wow. So there'll be something in the area of as many as 18 or as few as 12 venues here. Um, the interior portion of Food Park is going to open in September of this year. And the exterior part won't open till the spring of 2011. Mm-hmm. So I've been working on imagining food park and putting that together. And um, what are you seeing as like the the dominant trends that are that you're hoping to incorporate into food park? Well, what we're trying to do is what we are trying to create. We have five different places, and we're trying to create a mix that will. Um, 
work as both a neighborhood and a destination mm-hmm. location. And I think especially when the project's fully realized and all 12 to 18 stands are open, that that'll be a place that people will, will want to come to. And what the philosophy we've taken is that each stand should have a, a, a focus that shouldn't have a big menu, but whatever it does, it should do it extraordinarily well. Right. And at the moment, um, one of the stands is going to focus on serving bacon, Hey. And it's going to be serving. Are you going to be buying it from John Ubaldo? I don't know. We're looking for great artisanal bacon. Do you bacon know John? Stuff. I don't. John Boyce Farm? I don't. Uh, let me send you his information. His bacon is absolutely fantastic. And he gr- he he smokes it himself. He grows his own Berkshire piggies. He's way into his pigs. He's a total character. He's a wonderful guy. I will send you that info. So, you so should definitely the, check out his product. We, we have a, a space where we have... Um, uh, just a few seats, like five or six seats at uh-huh. each stand. And then we have some uh, maybe 75 seats indoors. And in the nice weather, there are another f- a few hundred seats in the park. Great. And so we're going to focus in that place on uh, bacon and eggs during uh-huh. the daytime. Beauty. It's going to be have a, a whole breakfast thing going on. And we're going to do bacon and burgers there the rest of the day. All quick service. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, eggs and bacon is something that you can, like, do really throughout the day and not necessarily in a breakfast form. You could do, like, an egg. You could do, like, a bacon pudding, a bacon bread pudding. We, we are know, going to be like having... Like, frittatas. I mean, souffle, you know. Th- there's no question that we could focus on bacon and eggs. And in this particular situation... Um, we're, we have a certain kitchen set up that's given to us where we can do certain things and not other things. I see. So we've chosen for the moment, and this is something that's in, in the creative uh, process as we speak. So we're looking to do a bacon-focused place that has bacon things all the time, that yeah. has an eggy breakfasty direction during the day, and that has a, a, a bacon and burgery direction during the, sure. the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, we have another uh, concept there called La Plancha, which is a concept that involves having uh, very f- uh, thinly sliced palliards of chicken and beef and pork uh-huh. that are cooked on a griddle really quickly. They're yeah. marinated, and then they're served over a salad. Or served with rice and beans, and with a, just a quick little, like a maybe a chimichurri sauce, uh, a couple of you know, a couple of little sauces that we're doing a really nice job with fresh herbs, good recipes, yeah. um, very quick cooking, nicely marinated proteins, uh, with a salad if someone wants something on the light side, maybe with French fries or rice and beans or a combination of those things, just simple. Uh, I love that. Then in, <laughs> that's perfect. Then. We're doing a an Asian stand. I would think so. Yeah. And um, you being you, me being me. Actually, I am opening um, a little restaurant before food park. Oh, uh, aren't you working on something with Jimmy Ang? With Joe Ang. Yeah. Joe Ang, excuse Joe me. Joe Ang, who's a great dim sum chef. Yeah. Who, who I've been working. And with you for have a long brasserie. I, there's a restaurant in NoHo that I'm not the owner, but I'm the consultant. 
that created the food program there. Right. It's uh, Chinatown Brasserie. Right, Chinatown Brasserie. Joe is the the chef of that restaurant. He originally was just a dim sum chef, but for a long time now he's been the executive chef. Mm -hmm. And he and I are partnering on a restaurant called Red Farm, which is going to open in the West Village in the springtime on Hudson Street. About My God, June you're 1st. a busy dude, man. And the, the reason I'm explaining this to you is to really go back to what's happening in Food Park, because the Asian food, uh, the Asian stand in Food Park, is going to be a branch of Red Farm. Great. And, and it's going to be called Red Farm Stand. And Very cute. I like that. It's going to have around ten items that we offer there. Um, we're going to be selling, among other things, bacon egg rolls. Okay. Are, are, I have See to the say, really—it's it's something that Joe's been playing with. When we first did Chinatown Brasserie, is four years ago, and Joe does some of the most um, elegant, involved, refined dim sum work of a lifetime. And at the same time, I said, you know, we have this American Cantonese tradition. Why don't you make an egg roll too, in addition to the forty-five other hand-done dumplings and rolls yeah, and things, right. and. He did that, and it was good. I would about, imagine. About two years ago, he came to me and said, you know, maybe less, maybe a year ago, he, I'm working on that egg roll. And he likes it when I say that his food is fantastic, which it <laughs> often is. Yeah. And I, I know what, when he asked me the question, how is it, if I say fantastic with a little wink, that's, you know, and I, I don't say fantastic unless I mean it. And the good thing is that his food is often fantastic. So he's been playing around <laughs> with uh, egg rolls. And he decided a couple of things about them. One of them is that the skin is sometimes a little chewy. You know, egg roll skin can be crunchy. But even then, it's it's thick and it's heavy. There's usually a second layer of dough. under, And he found a way to, to make it lighter and crunchier. Yeah. And not chewy. So Maybe better dough. Better dough. And he has a little trick up his sleeve. He actually takes the skins that he's using and cuts them so there's less of them. And then he dips them in a batter, which makes an extra crust on them. I see. So he almost does a tempura, like a... Like, oh, a, like that. Yeah, and, like a and really light batter. he does it in batter. a way so that you wouldn't know it. Yeah. Unless you were like really a food professional and you looked. Yes, you would you know. know. I would not know. You know, like some some of the some of the companies that make French fries um, put extra starch outside their potatoes to get an extra crust, and yeah. and of course, you know, the people who are doing it most successfully, what are they using? What kind of starch? Potato starch. Yeah. Outside of potato, you know. Yeah. So, Joe has made really good bacon egg rolls that we're going to have there. Um, we have a very fun item of uh, shumai, which are the the round, the round dumplings, sort pork. of pleated dumplings, right. yeah. And we have um, chicken shumai topped with shrimp, and then we have them threaded on the skewer, so you get a dumpling skewer. Nice. And they're pan fried, and they have a little. Uh, they're they're not crunchy, but they're like steamed, and then just given a different texture Lightly on one crisped. side. Yeah. And they have Oof. a little drizzle of uh, a really tasty brown sauce and a little herb dipped in them. You know, just. When you get a skewer like that, even though it's kind of a, a, a new creative way to to put it out there, there's something just sensible and on the money about that form. And you look Absolutely. at it and you say, "Gee, what is, you know? What a logical, smart, reasonable completely thing practical. to do." Completely practical, yeah, right. completely practical. So we're, we're you know so and we're doing about 
10 different items like that. We're going to do some buns with probably with short ribs and pork bellies and um, some soupy things. So we're opening a Red Farm stand there. Uh, Other things we have planned are uh, we have a little cart that we're planning to only sell chocolate pudding at. We have this fantastic chocolate pudding uh, recipe. Um, (laughs) We have a, a stand that I can't really talk about the names involved yet, but that is a little... Think of Chef Boyardee, you know, as, as a brand. We're, one of the okay. things we're playing with is developing brands here. Sure. And we're looking to use this as a... As a Almost a focus group, really, because, I mean... Know, it's, it's a fun way to develop yeah, different brands. Yeah, it is. So we're, we're doing something that's called Chef So-and-So, but instead of Boyardee, it's one of our top Italian toques. Mm-hmm. Whose name you'd recognize and who you'd say, "Oh, I'd like to go check out his lasagna." Yeah. So uh, I lasagna today myself, actually. You did? <laughs> yeah. I, I had some. I had some dim sum today. So <laughs> you know, shrimp balls before before yeah. you go on the radio. Are That's right. Good, you really you know? need to do that. Yeah, and certainly so, before. So you So anyway, eat a pizza we're playing. We're playing with food park, and it's exciting. And uh, we look at a number of other concepts that that we could put there we're going to have a coffee concept with panini we may have a brown bag or bento box concept where you just uh-huh. all we do is have one lunch every day for eight bucks yeah you just come and get it and yeah, go away and yeah just based upon what we have available i think that's a nice idea and it's a fun project it it's a very unusual space because it's been designed by a man uh, named sid mead who's a 75-year-old futurist and designer. He's based in Santa Monica, California. He's very famous in Japan. He's designed all these cars of the future for all these, uh, for many... Really? For the big car companies? Yeah, over the years. And years ago, he designed what were very futuristic and highly chattered about and thought of um, stage sets um, uh, for a movie... uh, called Blade Runner. Oh my God! Yeah. yeah. So we all saw that. Yeah, right. It's, 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 it's <laughs> Multiple my times. Mind for a second. So um, the interior of both a Basque restaurant and a food park is uh, based on uh, designs and suggestions that Sid made, and has a very mm-hmm. futuristic look to it. Um, we're going to have a very unusual ordering system in food park. We're going to have touch screens spread throughout the space. Oh, my God. So you can actually just put your key your order into your thing and then go by the kiosk and pick it up? That's exactly right. Oh. You can be. We have something like 18. That is genius. We have 18 screens, I think. Yeah. And um, you can order from any unit just by going up to one screen. Yeah. Slide your card. And um, you'll get a little chit, and you just go exchange your chit for your food. Oh, my God. That is brilliant. Now, is that the first time that kind of... Has anybody done that before? That ordering system just makes so much sense to me. I love it. You know, it's... it's. Um, I'm, I guess someone must have done it before, but it's definitely the future. We, yeah. You know, we also have a couple of hosts or hostesses who are going to be walking around the property. I, you know, I... I hope that we'll be busy enough, and I don't know if we'll be busy right in the beginning, but uh, I think when the outdoors is open and it's the summertime, there's going to be the largest video screen in the city. It's going to be one of the features of that park. There's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of cultural things taking place. 
Um, we're going to have uh, individuals walking around with handheld computers so that you'll be able to walk up to them and place an order, or they'll be able to walk up to you and place an order. Wow. And just swipe your credit card, and then you wow. can go pick it up. So, I, you know, it's exciting. It's a, That's an ambitious project. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be fun for us to open Red Farm Restaurant on Hudson Street, and then maybe three months later open up Red Farm Stand. We're yeah, probably going to have mostly different items. You know, at Red Farm Stand, we're concentrating on the same super high quality, but items that can be produced in that format and still have the same quality attached to them. Sure, absolutely. And um, so that, you know, that's what we're working on. It'll be interesting to see the about the Spanish restaurant and how that works out. And well, I think Spanish food is, is food. I think Spanish food is, is one of the big waves. That's, I mean, with the success of La Boqueria and then there's the others, other Spanish tapas bars. That's, I think Chiquitas that's been a, yeah, and, it's yeah. a growing trend, but um, just to speak, we have to, we're going to wrap it up in a few minutes, but um. <clears throat> The thing about the food park that really interested me when you were telling us about it at the Chinese at our cooking lesson was was its um, sort of symmetry with the food truck and like how the sort of mobile food units and and that kind of that that sort of concept really seems to be what's going on right now in terms of no question about what people it. are looking for and it's you know it's it's and um, I'm going to be working with George Motes later this um, season on the New York Food Film Festival, doing some promotion for him. And they're doing a whole concept with food trucks where they, you know what they do, they bring, they have the screen of film and then they bring the food in right. and you take, you eat the food that you're watching on the screen kind of thing. And they're bringing a whole bunch of food trucks in to do that. And it's the first time they've done that. And they're actually expanding this into Chicago. So that's that whole food film festival thing is really happening. Well, for them. we've, we've uh, absolutely explored the possibility of having some food trucks adjacent to food park. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's having been around the business now for a long time. It, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting to see how the industry has morphed. Uh, Isn't it between bloggers, between the changes in the economy, between you know an incredibly strong trend to casual um, people are looking for a different kind of experience. People are looking for a foodie experience, but at this point, what's accessible is something that's inexpensive, that's something that's easy, that's something that's mobile sometimes, and the old old fashioned experience of getting dressed up and going out for a big night. It, I wouldn't say that it's passe, but it, it's it happens so much less these days, and it's not what people want. Um, how do you keep track of what people want? Like, how do you? I mean, you've been in the business such a long time. You know, I you I must explore. really have like, don't you have like a sixth sense about what's coming next? I mean, you you have to really to be successful. I, I, you know, restaurant I've, I've always prided myself on staying on the the edge of the mm -hmm. business. And, you know, in, in terms of Asian food, which is my core work, um, I think regionality is coming mm -hmm. um, from the Chinese point of view. I, you know, China has many provinces. Most of us don't know the, the names of any of those, let alone no their kidding. local cuisine. Yeah. And um, I think we're starting to see more of that uh, uh, unveil itself. Um, and anything that is casual you know the whole with japanese food the whole trend towards izakayas towards small plates of food towards drinking and um 
you know, and simultaneously people are wanting a caesecariori or a little private banquet. And then also a very casual, you know, let's go to St. Mark's place and, you know, get a pitcher of beer and have some small plates. Um, I see that hap- moving forward simultaneously. Um, and, and local products, quality products, better ingredients. Um, I, I certainly, in the Chinese food world, wish for better ingredients. One of the problems that we've had over the years in the industry is that people look on Chinese food as something that's a lot of food, it's inexpensive, and it, the Chinese chef and the Chinese restaurateur want to please the public. And so they look to give big, tasty quantities of food, and it's been a problem when you start talking about quality ingredients. They just haven't been able to afford better better foods. Mm-hmm. And it's led to a lack of creativity, mm-hmm. a lack of exposure to other cuisines, so that the Chinese food community's been kind of insular for a long time. And now suddenly with uh, China blossoming with the two systems, with communism but with capitalism also, and with their being such, you know, what is it, a 14% growth in the economy and 9% growth every year, even in these times, there's more income there. There's more disposable income. There's more demand for f- interesting food and interesting products. And mm. and I, I, I see that as uh, certainly in China as something, uh, a good thing. You know, I, yeah. we've had so many questions about products from China over the last mm. period of years that it's gotten scary. And I, I think that there's clearly a reaction on the part of the Chinese to move away from that. Just the way 10 years ago, no one wanted to drive a Korean car, and now a Hyundai is, you know, out there competing with... Uh, Toyota. No. <laughs> apparently <laughs> surpassing <Just> <laughs> them, you know. Apparently it's not a competition anymore. Yeah. But uh, I, th- I think that we're going to see more of that from, the, from China. They're a powerhouse, and um, finally I think there's going to be a, a different kind of understanding, more similar... It kind of, you know, maybe simultaneously assimilation on the one hand and um, uh, more reverence for local uh, provincial cuisines. Mm-hmm. You know, I think both of those things can be going well, on at the same time. Well, it's funny because I do, I see that here in the States as well. And I think, you know, with the with the, um, the food, New York Food Film Festival, um, what one of the things that's sort of a criteria or, or the way I understand that festival is put together is to celebrate specific regional cuisines or specific regional dishes. And I think that, um, you know, just the idea that instead of just a Spanish restaurant, it's a Basque restaurant. Um, you know, if you're going to open a particular type of, I don't know, Ameri- you know, Italian restaurant, is it going to be from Emilia Romagna or is it going to be from Sicily or is it you know? yeah, say, yeah. yeah I mean it's all people are getting very very specific about the regions of um, where they are well, uh, well people are excited about food and, and, yeah. and as as that excitement builds and, and uh, the, the food world grows um, I think it's only logical that we're going to get into the nooks and crannies more right yeah absolutely and, and it's in the details and, and it also it also ties into the whole sort of locavore movement which you know is it's got it i mean I'm, I'm i'm happy to eat regionally as much as i can but i'm, I'm never going to say no to uh you know a perfect uh blood orange from italy either I mean, <laughs> Listen, you, know? you know i'm happy to hear you say from italy because I keep telling people who love blood orange juice, it really only works with those Italian blood oranges in my experience. I mean, I like the California ones, but they're they're definitely not as good. It's, no, it's a different, it's a different flavor. 
It is so, yeah. but and you know, I mean, food. The I mean, Patrick has said this often on the show, and I and he really is right. It's like if if the best dates come from Yemen, I'm going to get them from Yemen. I'm not going to buy them. 20 miles because they're from 20 miles away. I'm still going to want the really good Well, great ones. you know, I've grown up that way. I've I've consistently spoken about what do you want from food? You know, when you ask someone, what do you want from your meal? Well, I I'd like it to be healthy. And um but first and foremost, I want it to be delicious. Yeah. After I want the flavor. Know, and um you know, if you look at authentic Authentic doesn't mean delicious. If you look at homemade, <laughs> homemade doesn't mean delicious. Yeah. If you say it was made by my grandma, we all hope that that's going to be delicious. But it's none a of nice that fantasy. is fantasy. Yeah. It, well, and, and sometimes it's really a reality. Absolutely, my grandmother. You know, there's every, you, you run into everything, yeah. but um, you know, it's asparagus season. It's February, right? right? It's like there's snow out there. And every year of my life, I cook them all the time. I look forward to the middle and end of February because it's springtime in Southern California and in Mexico. And yeah. the asparagus that start coming right at this time of the year. It's good. No, excellent. You know, for me, better than the asparagus I get in the springtime here. Like the West really? Coast asparagus tastes better to me. Huh. They're sweeter. They're, they, they simply taste better. Yeah. So to me, the next four to six weeks... It's the best asparagus of the year. Right. And, you know, that's just in my experience. And just because it's coming from 3,000 miles away doesn't mean we shouldn't be eating it. Well, I mean, that's a different question. You know, what its carbon footprint is, what 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 we need to do to well, support the you know, We're the, never going to go world. back. We're never going to go back. You know, and that's, I think that's, you know, until we start recognizing that we're not going to go back to a food system that, you know, relied on the uh, Pony Express, essentially. You know, we're... It's great to support your local guys. You all want to eat, you know, everybody wants to eat regionally as much as you can, but you know, it's it's not always the most practical thing. Well, you know, and you have to support the economies not just in your own area but around the world. Well, I mean, one of the things it's it's a little off subject, but I think not a bad segue from what you're saying is, you know, in my core area of expertise, which is Chinese food, it's it's interesting to me how sophisticated Chinese food is in terms of Having learned how to preserve so many foods, yeah, and um, so many dried vegetables and, and fishes and and things that you don't see in other cuisines to that extent, right? And um, you know, it's something that out of necessity, but these days something very, very good. I mean, I was working with a chef doing recipe development this week, working on cooking pork bellies, and. Um, Pretty interesting. He braised the pork belly in the, a soy-based liquid with some herbs. And then after it was maybe braised for an 60 minutes and not totally tender, but starting to get tender, he covered it with these dried pick, this dried pickled cabbage. Wow. And steamed it for two more hours. And the flavor of the cabbage soaked into the meat. And yeah. And it was, you know, really terrific. And that sounds great, but also kind of interesting in terms of local and 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 preserving things and when things are in season and not in season, sure. and occurs to me something very refined, you know, very interesting that they have figured out how to do that. Or it always amazes me when I work with dry shiitake mushrooms and see how mm. the dry ones taste so great. You they know. do. 
you know, yeah, very sort of concentrated, like, concentrated and a different mm -hmm. texture. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you buy really, really good grade dry shiitakes, they have crenellations and lines on top. Uh, regular shiitakes in Chinese are called winter mushroom tangu, and uh, the ones with the lines on top are called flower mushrooms huagu. Hmm. Well, when you take those mushrooms and you soak them for a really long time, it's funny, when I, I learned about Chinese cooking, you soak your black mushrooms, meaning the dried shiitakes, for 20 minutes in hot water. Hmm. Um, the flower mushrooms, they're better soaked for four days. Wow. You know, and certainly 24 hours. And it's remarkable how much better they are at 72 or 96. Huh. And what great meaty texture, you know, that put a portobello to shame. Yeah. In terms of their mouthfeel and, and um, to me, depths of flavor. So I, I, I find that, you know, an exciting part of, of the world that I, you know, play my games with. <laughs> so. Hardly playing. Well, I guess we have to wrap it up, Ed. This has been uh, the second hour of the main course on Heritage Radio Network. My guest has been Ed Schoenfeld. Thank you very much for joining me today, Ed. I hope you'll come back and be a regular guest with us. It sounds really good. Fun. I had yeah, fun. especially when you're getting uh, you know, your your new projects underway and, and things are going on. Let's let's hear an update when that happens. Sounds good. We'll invite you to Food Park too. I'm uh, excited. You know, check it out. Absolutely. And uh, Nat, thank you very much for engineering today. Our engineer Nat Wiener, alone in the booth. And uh, we'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks. Mm -hmm.